show. The no make it show. Yeah, uh-huh. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show. Hello and welcome to the No Mickey Show. I am No Mickey Const. So the question right now on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, the question that's in my mind is, can movements move policy in this era, in this political dynamic, with this political dynamic? That seems like a vital question on this day. Again, one year after George Floyd was brutally murdered and taken from his friends and his family and his life, George Floyd became the name and the face of the largest uprising in history in the United States. Black lives and allies rose in righteous anger, demanding an end to police violence. A movement bigger and stronger than ever before. Yet, what has actually changed? Well, definitely not enough, of course. Clearly, we have to keep up the pressure, or should we change tactics, or both? George Floyd's brother touched on this all this morning. They watched it closely, and I I think about my brother, all the time, and my sister called me at 12 o'clock last night. She said, this is the day that our brother has left the earth. Just devastated. Your, your family has been devastated. Your, the personal price that you have paid is immeasurable. Do you think, when you look at the state of affairs, how, you know, around the world, but also Americans, how they understand the problem that African-Americans are facing. Do you think things have changed in the last year, Falonis? I think things have changed. I think that, uh, that it's moving slowly, but it's making progress. Uh, I just want the, everything to be um, better in life because I don't want to see people dying the same way my brother has passed. Uh- yeah, change is happening. Most obviously, uh, George Floyd's killer, Derek Chauvin, has been convicted, a police officer, not protected by his own police chief. That is change. It's a step in holding police to account both as individuals and as part of a system of racist violence that has infected our country since slavery was brought here. But now what? People of color are being shot and killed by the police at twice the rate of white people, and that is just what is recorded. To stop that, we need sweeping change in the system of policing. We need divestment from policing. We need to reallocate that money into communities and actually dealing with the problems at the core. One sign that change is coming is what I just said, that we need sweeping change in the system of policing. It is now a mainstream thought in American politics. We have broken through culturally. The movement for black lives has elevated the conversation to a way that even the most conservative people, whether it's citizens or lawmakers, cannot avoid it. Republicans are even embracing this thought of police reform, not just Democrats. And even the wave of law and order has, that is all this talk of law and order that has risen up out of the pandemic has been forced to acknowledge the movement for black lives and the work that has been done on the ground. In New York, Eric Adams, who's a former police captain who actually got into the police to, quote, reform it after he was beaten up by a cop as a kid with his brother. He says that he will crack down on crime, but also use his experience to reform the police from the inside. Okay, that's rhetoric, except he isn't cutting the police budget anytime soon. He will not uh, cut the police budget, and his solution is to put more police in the subways. That is not a solution, but he's acknowledged it. Maya Wiley says curbing curbing crime and curbing police violence are not contradictions. We can and must do both. So the rhetoric is shifting, but the actions are not. So what is it going to take? President Biden has asked Congress to send him a police reform bill by today, the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. That hasn't happened, but a bill in the works, but a bill is in the works and supporters say it won't be much longer. 
Republicans as well as Democrats support the change. Republicans say they support the change. Huh. Will the new law be enough? Of course not. No one action will be enough to purge problems that have taken literally the history of this country to create. But action upon action in the courts, in local and state government, from Washington and continuously in the streets, as progressive DAs get elected, as attorneys general are getting elected, that does move the system. But is it fast enough? I want to believe that it's happening, not because I'm some sort of Pollyanna or because I want something hopeful to say on this tragic day. No, I want to believe that this movement is forcing change because we need to keep going. We can't stop. We can't rest our burdens because change has been too long coming. It's going to take time. Culturally, it has started to happen. The needle has shifted. And if we look across the country right now, it is not the Republicans holding up these actions, it's actually the Democrats. Sure, federal legislation will make a difference and it's a step in the right direction. But what I wanna see is our allies on Capitol Hill calling out their democratic lawmakers at the local level. I'm talking about the democratic mayors and cities across America who are not cutting those police budgets, who are beholden to the police unions, who are scared of the police unions and who are buying into this law and order politics that has emerged out of the pandemic. We have to do more. Communities are relying on more resources, especially since this economy is tanking. We have to reallocate our budgets to mental health, to community service, to social services, because that is what is gonna get us out of whatever law and order crisis, crime crisis Republicans are trying to shove down our throats through the New York Post headlines and the Daily News headlines and the Daily Caller headlines. What is going to solve that is if we actually invest in communities and we believe in people and we care about the people. And if the Democrats who are elected across this country who are in the mayor's positions actually go beyond the rhetoric. That is a, that's not even a Band-Aid. That is not even a Band-Aid. Because every day there's another George Floyd. George Floyd, we say his name today, we honor him today, but the movement can't stop. But the tactics may need to shift. It is time to hold the Democratic lawmakers at the local level, their feet to the fire on a whole other level. That is how change is going to happen, because the reality is, is it is happening too slowly. That's where I'm not going to be Pollyanna. The largest movement in history, in history, has not changed the budgets of major cities across this country. And it is far past time that we do that. We have a wonderful show for you today. Uh, we have Akela Lacey on today to talk about that piece of legislation that is uh, set before Congress. She is a politics reporter at The Intercept. It is this deadline for poli a police reform bill. She's going to talk about it a little bit more. And then later on, we have the one and only Ben Dixon and Simon Road here to talk about today's news. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, as we said in the opening, today is the deadline for the, this is the the, the bill that, the police reform bill uh, before Congress. Uh, this is a bill that President Biden has said uh, a deadline is today. We are so thrilled to have the politics reporter for The Intercept, Kayla Lacey here. She has written a piece on this titled, Congress Misses Symbolic Deadline for Police Reform. Ooh, okay, Kayla. What? Let's just start off with what is this police reform bill? Does it does it go does it on, on behalf of like the movement for Black Lives? Does it go far enough? So uh, there actually isn't a bill yet. Like uh, legislators have been working off of the Justice and Policing Act, which passed the House in March. Um, and you mentioned the movement for Black Lives. Um, they actually actively opposed the Justice and Policing Act at the time um, and had put forth their own piece of legislation called the Breathe Act, which um, was never actually introduced in Congress. Um, and has not picked up support beyond um, endorsements from reps Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley. Um, so the bill that they're talking about right now is going to be, you know, it's expected to be some sort of amalgamation of the Justice and Policing Act and uh, Senator Tim Scott's uh, police reform bill that he introduced uh, last year. Um, 
And there are things on the chopping block. One of the, the most meaningful provisions in the Justice and Policing Act that passed in March was a provision that would end qualified immunity um, for police officers that, you know, people didn't never, never expected that to really get anywhere in the Senate. Um, but it was looking like they were moving towards some sort of a compromise that, again, organizers would not have been happy with this. But Tim Scott, you know, suggested that he might have been open to instead of ending qualified immunity for all police officers, uh, allowing people to sue police departments instead of suing individual officers, which, um, you know, is still doesn't really address the core issue. Again, there are a lot of issues with, with you know, other legal obstacles to come up when you talk about suing police departments. But that just to say that the most meaningful piece of this legislation has been, you know, effectively cut out of it. And so um, what's left are hopefully uh, ending transfer of military weapons to local police departments. Um, there is a ban on chokeholds, um, a ban on no-knock warrants, some things that are already in place at the local level and that we know that those laws have not stopped police from using those things to, to kill people. Um, again, this is this is just for this is a federal bill. So who does this apply to? So this would apply to federal officers and some state and local officers would be impacted um, based on, you know, if, if they uh, if their departments comply with certain pieces of the bill, then they would be eligible for certain grants, that kind of thing. Um, okay, so let's talk about the dynamics with the Democratic Party, because this is Tim Scott, who's a Republican, for folks who may not know. Uh, <laughs> why is he taking the lead on this and, and, and not, uh, I don't know, Cory Booker? So Cory Booker, so the, the people at the negotiating table are Tim Scott, Cory Booker, and Karen Bass. Um, Cory Booker and Tim Scott, you know, Vice had a piece out today saying that they're apparently joined at the hip, haven't left each other's side while they're negotiating these things. Um, it's not lost on people that these are the, you know, two, two, the two Black senators um, in the caucus right now, um, or in the chamber right now. Uh, Tim Scott, though, you know, he, he sort of took on the face of of the voice for police reform within the Republican Party, I think, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, because the, he is the only Black Republican senator. Um, not that he isn't passionate about the issues, but I think that that's a big part of it. Um, at the end of the day, though, you know, he's been pretty adamant that he is on the side of law enforcement in a lot of these these um, negotiations, and uh, that is part. Of, so it, it's interesting because it's actually not Tim Scott who derailed this issue with qualified immunity. Like I said, he he had been open to to compromise on it until um, Majority Whip Jim Clyburn uh, went on Sunday shows and made the comment that Democrats should be open to passing a bill that doesn't end qualified immunity, um, after which point Tim Scott told reporters that he was, quote, on the opposite side of the issue now. Um, so we can thank Clyburn for that. Why did Clyburn do that? <laughs> Well, it's really interesting because, I mean, at the time, and this is in the story that we wrote today, but staffers, you know, that I spoke to at the time of Clyburn's comments before Tim Scott changed his mind were very much like, you know, Clyburn isn't even in the negotiating room. He can say whatever he's going to say. It doesn't really matter what he says. There's a united front on this, especially among progressives who are who are negotiating this in the House. Um Obviously, you know, there wasn't like Tim Scott can do whatever he wants to do when he sees that opening. I think it makes political sense for him to take it. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know why Jim Clyburn did that, but I think, you know, he has been sort of very vocally against uh, efforts at police reform all year and, and in the past. And so I think that's part of why staffers were kind of like, well, that's not that's not surprising at all. He doesn't you know, he's not on the same page as the rest of negotiators are on this. So he took his platform. <laughs> Tim Clyburn likes to insert his opinions at opportunistic moments um, to influence change. <laughs> Seems like a trend here. It's yeah, it's funny. And I mean, it's it's also funny because obviously part of this is spin, you know, staffers want to, you know, put out the um, the idea that they have control over the negotiations, but, you know, they can't, you know, if a, if a lawmaker sees another lawmaker make this comment and, you know, that it's all a game, like it's all, everyone is like trading, you know, what they can get for, for what they want in the bill. So, yeah. So what we're left with. Who are those in, I mean, Richard Tlaib, you mentioned, but um, are there, there others that are pushing back against Clyburn and like, what are, how are those dynamics playing out? Yeah, so they're actually, um, uh, Rep. Ayanna Presley and Cori Bush led a letter last week with um, eight other members. I think um, it's Rashida Tlaib, um, Jamal Bowman, Mondaire Jones, Ilhan Omar, AOC, 
um, Jan Schakowsky, Pramila Jayapal, um, and I think I'm missing one or two folks, but they sent a letter to congressional leadership last Friday uh, expressing deep concern with, uh, you know, reporting and news that discussions on qualified immunity were going south. Um, and, it, you know, it was not lost on people who saw that letter that the number of people who signed the letter is the number of people that could tank this bill when and if it comes back to the House. Um, this is an example where people are waiting to see if progressives will actually use the leverage we've been talking about them, you know, their newly found leverage that we've been talking about for so long. Um, they almost use this, you know, their, their numbers to tank the US Capitol Police spending bill at the last second last week, um, which my colleague Ryan Grimm reported on, they ended up not doing that. Um, and, you know, but they, they came very close, like they were negotiating up until the last second. So um, it's on the table right now, certainly. Um, and then the alternative, uh, there's, there's, you mentioned this bill that the Movement for Black Lives was pushing forward. Um, could that have a life if this bill gets tanked? I don't think so. I mean, it, it, it would need to be, it hasn't even been officially introduced in Congress. Mm -hmm. Like this is not like it would need, you know, Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib have been, you know, they've stood by it. There are groups that oppose JPA are still support the Breathe Act. Um, I'm not sure if there are uh, efforts at the moment to get it reintroduced in Congress just because so much energy has been expended on JPA. Um, and again, things Things that we thought were a done deal are, are obviously getting taken off the table at this point still. Um, so yeah, I don't, it, it's unlikely, but maybe in this session, unlikely, but um, you know, obviously people are going to be working on this for, for a long time. So possibly. So how on. much of this is, I mean, this is such an interesting dynamic because, <laughs> you know, the centrists will always, the establishment will always say, don't be the spoiler, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And here is a perfect example of, okay, you have a really weak bill. Uh, that could potentially pass, water down even more so. Um, and you have a perfect number of progressives who are saying, no, no, no. Uh, and if this bill is tanked, does that ruin the chances, potentially the chances? The narrative could be like, this, this could ruin the chances of something that is just decent enough until we get to a better place. Um, it's sort of like the centrist neoliberal argument for everything. Is, that, is this like a, a, a good representation of just this constant <laughs> narrative that's coming from the establishment about how progressives are uh, holding out? Uh, you mean, as far as like, not like, you know, the idea that they would blame progressives if this ends up going down the tapes. Um, yeah, I mean, yes. And I think the, 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 what I wanted to get across in the piece is that this is not something that even like, like legislators are acting like they are they are responding directly to calls from the movement that we saw explode yeah. last summer. The what that movement is called, like it's like that, like yeah, like I think, and I think people are starting to see more and more through that, especially because there are a growing number of people in Congress, like Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman, and and people like that who are you know. Well, at least in Cori Bush's case, directly coming from from that organizing space, and can say, you know, it's not like we're just talking theoretically about people, you know, legislators talking about, oh, this isn't actually what activists want. Like we have people who can speak more and more directly to that truth, and so I think, I don't think that you know the the average voter really buys sort of any sort of like people who are trying to blame it on progressives. I think they see that it's not really anything. It's not doing anything. It's also giving more money to police, which at the end of the day. Um, is something that everyone can, you know, you don't have to have a degree in political science to think, you know, that that's, to see that that's not what people are asking for. So yeah. when you say giving more money to police, uh, how is that allocated? So there is, I think there's like $750 million given to um, DOJ to, this is just to investigate uh, incidents of police misconduct. So that's like a separate set of money. And then there are all these other millions of dollars of grants and special programs like the COPS program, um, where, and like other programs for like, um, implicit bias program? training, um, cops is, what is it? Community oriented policing services, um, which is something that there's money appropriated to every session, um, in different spending bills for, um, supporting police departments basically. And they, they frame it as community oriented policing services to give it a, a sense that it's some, it's something that, that is done in concert with the community. It's actually not, it's just giving money to different, um, groups based on, or police departments based on whether or not they 
they comply with what the, the bill is calling for. But some of the other grants are, you know, given to departments if they um, do implicit bias trainings or, you know, they wear, they comply with the body camera regulation or that kind of thing. Um, so they're basically having them check off boxes to, to keep mm -hmm. their, you know, keep the same level of funding or, or get additional funding um, that they have been getting from the federal government. So, you know, this is so interesting to me because, um, you know, living in New York, like the, the conversation about how in any major city in America, any city in America, the conversation about um, just the police, police budgets, it, it ends with the mayor. Um, some of it's, you know, state level too. But I'm, I, I'm the, the unions the, 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 in New York are incredibly powerful over Democrats, even progressive Democrats, even our mayor, uh, who supposedly was the most progressive uh, candidate in his race. So how does that play out? Like, what's the lobbying like in, in Congress? Is is there a unified police union lobby? Is it as powerful, muscular as it is the local level? Is, is it the Defense Department? Like, where is, who's pushing for it in Congress? So this is an interesting question, and I don't have all the answers, but from what I do know, I think it's more of, you know, can, like members who get a lot of police funding, like Josh Gothheimer or Bill Pasquale, or um, members who live in like areas where they they get a lot of support from the police union, or you know they're campaigning with the police union. Most of the initial pushback for, to the qualified immunity stuff came from those members and Tom O'Halloran, who was a former police chief, and so people who have ties to the community and sort of are you know acting on behalf of these asks from them, but also are acting really on their own behalf. It's not really like mm. there's a police a unified police lobby that's spending all this money to get Congress to do this. It's really coming from from the members, um, and also I think that's a function of just the overall control that law enforcement and sort of like um, law enforcement adjacent groups have over mm -hmm. narratives around this stuff because members are responding to narratives and responding to perceived fears from their voters around things that, you know, end up not actually being true to what to what they're actually like legislating on. And so, for instance, like Bill Pascrell, we reported on this a while back, but he is, you know, one of the top recipients of law enforcement uh, law enforcement money in Congress. Um, during the infamous, you know, call that House Democrats had after elections last year, was like, you know, after all, everyone was blaming defund the police for almost losing their elections. He was like, I don't want to be made to walk the plank next on qualified immunity. And so it's not, it's it's all sort of a manufactured um, political fight. It's like they're not actually, they're not saying like oh, you know, my constituents really need this. They just know that they're going to get hit by the police unions if they are on the wrong side of the issue. Mm -hmm. And then what happens if the police unions hit them? Like, what, what are the ramifications? So one example, um, there was one Republican member of Congress who introduced a bill to end qualified immunity last summer, actually. Um, and then after he went on Tucker Carlson, um, he got a bunch of uh, feedback from police unions in his, in his district and ended up pulling, pulling the bill. Um, and then did exactly what you just said and blamed uh, lack of progress on police uh, reform on, on Democrats for, for holding things up. Um, so it's really the ramifications are, you know, they either they pull their funding, they complain to the member um, or they campaign, they end up campaigning against you in some way or, you know, and, you know, whether that's pulling your funding or endorsing your opponent or something like that. I mean, I don't have specific examples, but it's it's interesting because it's not it's not the kind of like smear campaign that you would assume. It's all very subtle sort of behind the scenes, but um, the the power and the control is just so deep seated. And I think um, law enforcement has been used to being able to sort of, you know, pull their weight de depending on how much money they give to, to a member um, or to a cause. So, yeah. Well, how is Tim Scott able to even entertain ending qualified immunity? Well, <laughs> um, so I think he wanted to, you know, appear open to the conversation. Um, then they came up with something that looked like a compromise that actually that you know the average person, if they hear, oh well, Tim Scott doesn't want to end qualified immunity, he wants to let people sue police departments. Like that sounds great if you don't know that people can already right. sue police departments, and uh, there are so many barriers that it doesn't even make it. It's it's a moot point. So. Um, unless you actually look into that. And I think they're banking on that and, and banking on like, you know, some people, people, 
I think trying to hit that sweet spot of voter who mm-hmm. maybe in Tim Scott's district, I don't know, who doesn't agree with the Democratic line on police reform, but does agree that police have too much um, too much freedom, which again, we, we reported on this, ending qualified immunity has long had bipartisan support from people like um, the Cato Institute to, you know, um, wow. even Clar- Clarence Thomas has supported the idea of limiting qualified immunity to a certain extent because it's the only, it's not a law, it's a doctrine, and right. it gives a certain level of, um, you know, n- not being beholden to the law to, to only a very small subset of people, which, you know, Republicans, Libertarians, and Democrats should all sort of be, you know, on the same page about not, not being in agreement with that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if your reporting has looked into this, but uh, where are we in terms of like, I hate to use word reform, but let's just start there because that's the starting point uh, at, at the levels, you know, just different cities across America right now. Are there are there certain standout cities that have made some sort of reforms post uh, George Floyd's murder? Yeah, so um, Los Angeles cut a significant portion of their police budget last summer. A number of other cities did that. I know Minneapolis, and I haven't been following this super closely, so I don't want to get this wrong, but I know Minneapolis had said that they were going to disband their police department completely. And then I know some of my colleagues at other media outlets have been reporting on sort of the fallout from that. And I think they ended up not being able to do it. Um, And yeah, but other other places are sort of piloting um, these alternative crisis response units. Like I think there was a um, there was a proposal to do, to put that into place in Chicago and to cut some of the police budget last summer. Um, I don't know that it was successful, but that was introduced, which was you know something that hadn't happened before. Um, and I know Oregon has had a pilot program that a lot of cities are are basing their models off of that's been running successfully for a while. Um, so we're seeing more and more stuff like that, but. But it's definitely, I, we saw a lot of flurry of activity at the city council level last year. And I know there's actually, um, in Rochester right now, they're having a fight over um, the police union actually, try, they successfully got um, the uh, disciplinary powers removed from this police accountability board that was um, approved a few years ago. And now um, the city council is working to reallocate funds away from the police de- department fully fund this police accountability board, give it back its disciplinary powers um, and reverse some of the, the stuff that the police union had done to fight reform there. Um, yeah. Oh, while the mayor of Rochester is in some serious hot water surrounding this in particular. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, on that note, sorry, just, just one more question. I don't know if you've heard this and, and if you haven't, don't worry, it's just my brain. Uh, okay, so say the police forces disbanded, is this like getting out of Afghanistan where there's just gonna be a bunch mm-hmm. of private contractors roaming around? Mm-hmm. So I think the idea, at least where I've seen it, is that people are building in another publicly funded non-police response unit. So it wouldn't be a private, it wouldn't be a private company, um, ideally. I, you know, at least that's what people are talking about. Um, you know, t- tr- there, there's been some letters and discussion around what this might look like at the federal level. And I know that has been the model there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the flip side of this is that we have seen, even in places where there are police presence, like, you know, no, there's nothing that stops people from forming militias and going out and like, you know, doing their own thing. And so I, like, you know, I'm just, I mean, I'm yes, just, that's, that's not I'm unusual. Just, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that I think that would happen if police don't, but like, you know, people were doing that at protests this summer when there was a massive police presence. And so um, just you, you saying like, oh, is it going to turn into a, a contractor thing. I mean, I, I think if people were to do that, it would not be for the reason that you know, it wouldn't be for the purpose of responding to a crisis, obviously. Um, but yeah, <laughs> don't worry, Eric Adams will save us. <laughs> Someone. Oh, I'm sorry, Andrew Yang. <laughs> More police. That's the solution. That is the solution to this crisis. That's it. Okay. Yeah, I'm joking, guys. Don't clip that. <laughs> Next thing I know, it's going to be like Jimmy Dore clipping that part and saying, <laughs> oh, <laughs> to be careful what you say now, because they take it out of context and it's going to be like some sort of ad. Um, Akela, <laughs> thank you for, for, for doing all this reporting. Um, man, I woke up this morning and this is exactly on my mind. Where are we? Why have the largest movement in history uh, in this country in terms of on the ground activism and, and yet 
neoliberal is going to neoliberal. We'll see. Biden is Biden is giving a speech at some point today, or he might have already done that. So you know, we, that's what we get today, at least. All right. Well, maybe he'll do something, or maybe Kamala will. Yeah. All right. Go check check out. <laughs> go check out Kayla Lacey's article um, on the, at the Intercept. It is titled "Congress Misses Symbolic Deadline for Police Reform." Go check it out. Great work. Always a pleasure having you on. You're the best. Thanks, Miki. Thanks for having me. Bye. <laughs> All right, we will be right back with our fabulous panel. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I just need a rant for a second. Um, I tweeted about this. I said in the majority report, I'm very passionate about this because this is my compromise position. You don't even want to know what my real position is. Um, I've decided I'm running for president. Screw it. I'm running for governor of Texas. (laughs) I don't know what I'm running for. I'm running for something. And it's because I'm so angry about this abortion ban as as so many others are uh, in Texas, banning uh, banning abortions after six weeks. Many women don't even know they're pregnant until around then. Uh, Maybe even afterwards, you know, people have irregular periods. Uh, This is horrifying. Just a it's basically a ban on abortion. they find these like constitutional wiggle rooms, but, but I'm just, I'm all about like shifting the narrative a little bit. And I think that I'm going to lobby for legislation for forced vasectomies. That's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to run for something on that. And I say that because vasectomies are reversible. And I've, I tweeted about this. People are really supportive on Twitter or some people don't think it's a joke. It's not a joke. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I have been dealing with hormones since I was 16 years old being injected in me. And then some people say, well, you know, the chances of women are saying this, chances of you getting pregnant, if it's reversed or much lower, guess what? <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Too bad. I'm done. Ben, ben retweeted this. This is my rant right now. I am, you know what my, that's my compromise because you know what my real option, I've said this before on air. Those of you who have dogs, you know when you get them as puppies they and they have your boy dog, they hump everything in sight, they're destructive, they wreck things. That is men! I'm just done! <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> we have the one and only Ben Dixon. He is the host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. Uh, which you can go check out on YouTube and all where are all the places you also have a book called God is not a Republican. Well, yeah, it's been, it was, it's a much older book. It's, I wrote it back in 2012. It came out. Um, and I'm working on a new book that'll be coming Ooh. out probably by the end of this year. Yeah. Ooh, what's the theme? Can you give us a little teaser? Yes, here? it is called the future is progressive. It is progressive. Yeah. God willing. Just, yeah. If, if progressive, going, God willing. If, exactly. Right. If there's going to be a future, it's got to be progressive or else yeah. we're going to destroy ourselves. This is pretty much the thing. Yes. And it, it involves vasectomies, guys. And that's the compromise. <laughs> I'm, I need to add that chapter. I love that tweet you said out earlier. It was amazing. <laughs> I, was like, I, I talk about this all the time, by the way, off camera. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going. My crazy theories are because I test them all the time with people. And like, yeah, 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 yeah. And men are into it. All right, Simon. Simon Road is, of course, a socialist writer. He was an organizer for Bernie 2020, and he's a producer over here at the Nomi Key Show. Uh, Yeah. All right. We can move on. (laughs) Sort of. Speaking of Greg Abbott, Greg Abbott, man, these they're just like, as the world gets more progressive, they get more Trumpian. Republican Governor Greg Abbott of Texas was on Fox News saying that he is going to uh, sign a law that will ensure that cities in the state of Texas will not be able to defund the police. Let's play that clip. I'm about to sign a law uh, that will ensure that cities in the state of Texas uh, will not be able to defund police. First, the context, and that is that you pointed out what's going on in Minneapolis, where it is both a tragedy and a disaster, uh, what's going on for the residents of Minneapolis because of the defunding of police. And you've seen the same thing in Portland and Seattle and Chicago and New York, et cetera. Harris, unfortunately, we had the same thing happen here in the state of Texas, where the city of Austin defunded police, which is why you saw that uh, tragic situation uh, reported in Austin, Texas. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a legal question here, but uh, Ben, when we go moderate, they go yeah. <laughs> that way. No, what absolutely. are your thoughts? Absolutely. I, I, I think, and I'm tired of having this conversation with, with Democrats because if at this point, if they don't see it, it's only because they're complicit 
right um and you're absolutely right if we if if we even talk in terms of centrism bipartisanship they go off the deep end over into the realm of marjorie taylor green one thing that greg abbott is trying to do there is the same thing that a lot of republicans are trying to do they're trying to blame the current uptick in violence uh in several cities and they're trying to blame it on the idea that we're going to defund the police because there's not been any defunding of any police anywhere. The cops are still getting paid. They're still taking tax dollars out of these communities. And instead of putting those tax dollars into the communities to address the despair that is in so many counties across this country, not not, not just because of COVID-19, but because of the economic conditions even before COVID-19, but COVID-19 exacerbated all these situations. That's why we're seeing crime and an uptick in those in violent crimes, but they're trying to make it seem like just simply calling for the defunding of police has led to more violence and that's not how any of this works except in the the petulant minds of republicans simon you live in a, a community that has actively been i think probably more than anywhere else in the country maybe next to los angeles um has taken on uh police departments are you getting this narrative too is, is this happening in in oregon right now yeah i mean this <clears throat> this is happening like all the time except the difference here in oregon and uh, here in portland is that our mayor likes to pretend that he um, is sympathetic to the demands that people are making, um, mm -hmm. and you know, making very, very, very minor cuts to you know drastically inflated police departments um, like the one that we have is not <laughs> is not cutting it. Um, and I, I think that you know Ben hit the nail on the head, right? Like, if you want to stop violent crime, you have to address the causes for violent crime right and that is you know adding more money to police departments increasing police presence in communities is absolutely not doing that um so you really need to have a totally different approach um that involves removing funding from police departments that have proven themselves to be ineffective and violent um and redirecting that money towards uh, other social services and things like that, that, you know, alleviating people's economic anxieties so that they, you know, don't fall down the wrong path. Um, and that that sort of stuff is going to keep our communities a lot safer. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, I'm 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 sitting on an island that has been living with austerity for for over a decade. I'm, I'm in Puerto Rico right now uh, working and and, you know, you these are the conversations. Austerity kills. Austerity makes people, you know, not want to live in their communities anymore. Go, go to desperate attempts to. I don't know. It just this is this is the fact that they can pivot in this environment, pivot to more police when how have the police actually solved the problem? Right. And I think, Ben, that's what you were like. That is the language we should all be saying over and over on repeat. Show us. The police have been on duty for the last year. I'm sorry. What, what have they done? What have they done? No, absolutely. And, and just even if you think about this logically, police are called to respond to crimes. Mm -hmm. They're right. never there to prevent crimes. Right. So how do we prevent crimes? Because all we're doing is funding more response to crimes. We're not funding crime prevention. And so the way we prevent crimes, there's so many studies that have been done already that shows you that crime is extreme, is, is overwhelmingly an economic phenomenon, right? Where you see poverty, you see crime. Where you see a lack of resources, you see crime. You see violent crimes, you see crimes of desperation, crimes of survival. You get that because people don't have what they need. And so instead of funding the solution, we're funding the reaction. Mm. I mean, let's also be clear that crimes happen in wealthy communities too. It's yeah. just, they don't get prosecuted types of the crimes. same way. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. talk about wage theft, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and also you have to consider whether or not smoking pot is a crime and who gets, you know, caught up in that. Yeah, definitely not a crime in this household. Go ahead. It's definitely not a crime here either. <laughs> Let's just pivot a second because um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is now the, I, I know we didn't prepare this one, but I, I couldn't avoid after, you know, Ben, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is now the symbol for uh, what is anti-Semitism. I don't know. I, I wanted to come up with something better than, than she is, she, she is the, what, she's like an organization that just designates whether something is, um, crosses the line or not, I guess is the, there's a lot of things I want to say, but I can't say. <laughs> I've already said forced vasectomy, so <laughs> you know where my mind's going. <laughs> Let's just put um, Marjorie Taylor Greene's, if you guys missed it, we're living under a rock. Uh, this is what she tweeted out 
Vaccinated employees get a vaccination logo, just like the Nazis forced Jewish people to wear a gold star. Vaccine passports and mask mandates create discrimination against unvaxxed people who trust their immune system to a virus that is 99% survivable. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, is, <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys, uh, but I don't think that when a Jewish person from Poland had a choice right. as to whether or not to be Jewish under, and I'm sure, you know, I'm not denouncing that, it's under a Nazi regime. What, when Ben Shapiro is like, this is too far. <laughs> I, you don't know, Mickey. I understand your frustration. If you don't, if I could just jump in there. Please because jump in, go right in. She is, um, She's pushing the envelope of that right wing faction of uh, of Israel and people who um, who support the state of Israel, those right wing conservatives. There's this unbelievable unity that they have had for a long time with groups who are clearly anti-Semitic. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Ben Shapiro, you know, he's on the side of the equation as some Nazis. He will never say he's in league with them, but they make some of the same arguments as Richard Spencer, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what Marjorie Taylor Greene really represents. And so she has gone so far, and this is what happens when you make league with, with people who are insidious like, and people who are reactionaries like um, the Richard Spencers of the world, the, the evangelical right, like I lump them all together. Of course, there's different ways of breaking them down, but at the end of the day, they're all reactionaries. And they've made their entire political hay and their money and their career off of being in league and they've obtained power the republican party has obtained power by empowering these reactionaries but when you've empowered them even through dog whistles for all the previous years eventually they get the megaphone and marjorie taylor green has the megaphone and now they're like oh wait no this is too far well no these are the people that you gave dog whistles to since richard nixon so don't complain right. now that this is coming back to bite you that's right and it's interesting because um if we can i don't know dorsey if you have that rebuke by the GOP House leadership uh, to Marjorie Taylor Greene, because the, the question I have around this is, you know, there is, there's an effort to, uh, here we go, this is the rebuke. House leader Kevin McCarthy released the following statement, quote, Marjorie is wrong, and her in intentional decision to compare the horrors of the Holocaust with wearing masks is appalling. <laughs> the Holocaust is the great atrocity committed, the greatest atrocity committed in history. The fact that this needs to be stated today is deeply troubling. At a time when the Jewish people face increased violence and threats, anti-Semitism was on the rise in the Democratic Party <laughs> and is completely ignored by Speaker Pelosi. Americans must stand together to defeat anti Semitism and any attempt to diminish the history of the Holocaust. Let's let's be clear. Let me be clear. Uh, the House Republican Conference condemns this language. End quote. So there's some interesting dynamics here because you have the COVID uh, denying yes. faction of the Republican Party. That's the Trumpian Republican Party, and then you have the Republican Party that's trying to keep their pro-Israel coalition together. But I actually think this plays into our hands. I might be wrong, and I'm curious what you think, Simon. Mm -hmm. Because it forces, the more the Republicans become the Zionist party, the more we have an opportunity to really hold Joe Biden's feet to the fire when it comes to Netanyahu. And I think that's why he's able to be a little bit more flexible now, even behind the scenes, um, which gets, gets us, Simon, what do you think of this? Because I have a, another clip I want to yeah. play. Well, you know, when I hear you reading that Marjorie Taylor Greene statement, I just think it's like it, if there are enough people who are who are all thinking that not wearing a mask mm. um, is means you're like an oppressed person, it, it sort of indicates that you, you really have not experienced any kind of oppression ever in your life. Right. Um, it's totally it's it's totally bonkers. And um, but yeah, I mean, it, whether or not this you know the Republicans leaning into the pro-Israel stuff uh, allows Joe Biden to to maybe lean the other way. I don't know. I haven't seen that yet. You know, I, I haven't. No, I mean, I, he has. He's called him out. I mean, this is stuff that the, 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 I'm not saying he's gone far enough, Joe Biden. Let's be very clear. But that what he has said out loud and behind the scenes is further than any de modern Democrat since Jimmy Carter has been able to do. Joe Biden. That's, yes, absolutely. And his staff. I mean, his staff. Two hundred of his staff members have petitioned Joe Biden on this. I mean, this is. This is this is his again not far enough, right? But like yeah. I, completely yeah, I see, I unimaginable. Change, right? Like I want to see 
<clears throat> I want to see the United States stop giving billions of dollars to Israel, right? I want I want to see Joe Biden come out and and say that what you know Israel Israel is an apartheid state. Right? I, I want him to to come out a lot stronger. And, and you're right, you're right. Like give him credit where where credit's due, but. I just don't see a ton to give him credit for. I'm not giving him credit. I'm just saying that the dynamics have shifted so much now that he is not like, you know, he's scared of his own staff. He's, <laughs> like he's, he's certainly he's certainly not able to take the standard talking points and the standard route um, that we saw at the very beginning, like ABC News, all the mainstream media, they immediately pivoted to Hamas, 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 right. and uh, they completely erased what was happening with the Palestinian children, right? And this, you know, Ned Price couldn't even acknowledge that uh, it was wrong. He couldn't even condemn the murder of Palestinian children. And so it's like, it, it has been different in the sense that he isn't able to just get away with the standard talking points of Israel has a right to defend itself because Hamas is the only bad actor in this conversation that I would right. say that would be a difference that I see for sure well this is another example of how I think that uh there Israel is worried that this is just becoming a Republican uh you know the, the Republicans are their only allies you have Netanyahu uh who who is making a statement basically kissing Joe Biden's ass I love it <laughs> so um Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu thanks Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and President Biden for firmly supporting Israel's right of self-defense <laughs> he adds that if well, well let's play the clip and I'll, I'll add the last part uh, a vote of thanks to President Biden and you for uh, firmly supporting Israel's right of self-defense uh, I have to say that uh, Secretary Blinken, in a previous capacity, in 2014, when we had uh, another round of engagement against Hamas aggression, uh, supported us by having uh, Iron Dome replenishments, a quarter of a billion dollars, that you personally shepherded through the system very quickly. And we remember it, and we're very grateful to you. And you are giving meaning to this now, again, with replenishments of Iron Dome interceptors, that saved civilian lives on both sides. Uh, and we, we're grateful for that, too. Uh, we, too, will give meaning to our commitment to our self-defense. If Hamas breaks the calm and attacks Israel, our response will be very powerful. Oh, Joe Biden's like, what? <laughs> He's like, don't say that out loud. I did that so no, no one was looking in the middle of the night. Hmm. I, um, and <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I, we've made progress, but not enough clearly, right? Clearly. Def definitely not enough to turn this around. Um, I don't, when, when he's, when I hear him say, uh, we're going to respond, uh, very strongly against Hamas, what I hear is we're going to respond very strongly against women and children, yes. and Palestinian women and children, because that's, that's who was getting killed. Um, and so to me, no matter how much progress we're, we've made, um, the reality of it is, is that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and that far right wing faction of Israel, they're more than happy to drop bombs to get political points, because honestly, let's think about this in context. Benjamin Netanyahu now has a stronger standing in his political standing there in Israel when he was on the ropes. He couldn't even form a coalition. Uh, right. uh, and, and, and he's also facing um, an indictment for corruption. And so now he's able to wag the dog and he doesn't care how many people he has to kill to, to maintain the power he wants. And, and so so long as he can satisfy and satiate that far right wing faction of, of his government. Yeah, he's he's campaigning essentially on carpet bombing and yeah. um, thank you, United States and, and supposed uh, uh, arbiters of democracy and humanitarian rights, Joe Biden, for giving them you know, the, the tools to do so. Thank you, taxpayers. Hmm. Uh, Simon, I mean, this is such an egregious tactic in my mind, but uh, do you think that that Netanyahu survives this, given the dynamics locally? Um, I, I don't whether Netanyahu survives this, like I'm, I'm not super familiar enough with the political situation within Israel and his popularity there. Um, but yeah, just just from watching that video clip, um, my thoughts are that the like if if Netanyahu is you know seeing Joe Biden as an ally, then that's you know going back to what we were talking about before. Clearly, Joe Biden hasn't gone far enough. Um, and then when Netanyahu says you know that he's going to come down hard against any Palestinians or, or that if Hamas 
breaks the calm, um, which is you know, an, an awful like implication that, that what Palestinians have been experiencing is calm. Um, it's, it's just, it's really atrocious. And who decides what calm is? Yeah. Netanyahu? I mean, that, it's, it's such, it just shows you the paternalistic, it's not even paternalistic, it's, 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 it's occupied, it's, it's, it's an apartheid as we've stated. It's not even paternalistic. Um, you know, the, their land has been taken, they have nowhere to go. I can't believe how many shows we've had to discuss this and yet we're still uh, watching this play out with the Democrats. Um, all right, let's do one more. What else do we have here? Nicole, uh, this is my favorite one because this is the future of America as Chris Christie uh, <laughs> has decided that he is not precluding himself from running for president in 2024. Just when you thought <laughs> it couldn't get spicier, we now have Chris Christie thinking of running again. <laughs> I certainly would not preclude myself from doing so. But what I also know is that two years is a lifetime in politics, a lifetime. So anytime you make a decision that prematurely, chances are you may not make the right one. So I'm gonna to continue to do what I do every day, work hard for my family, work hard for my community, speak out on issues like this that I really feel very strongly about. Um, and then we'll make a decision after the midterms in 2022 about whether or not we wanna reenter politics. Um, but uh, certainly we wouldn't preclude Chris and no one else will make that decision for me except for me and my wife. I um, he has a lot of money to make off the backs of honest Puerto Ricans in the meantime, as one of the uh, uh, the consultants who's who's really taking advantage of the Puerto Rican people also just want to throw that out there. Uh, you got a lot to make a lot of money before you decide to start that committee. Ben, are you ready for Christie's uh, <laughs> comeback? Um, you know, he doesn't stand a chance. He might as well just shut up and shut it down now and just keep making his money in, in the in the private sector. Uh, and I say I should say, quote unquote, private sector, because it's a direct result of his political participation. Um, but that said, uh, this is the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm -hmm. This is the party of Donald Trump. This is the party of Tom Cotton. This is the party of the reaction and the, the furthest reactionary side, because the Republicans, conservatism, almost by definition, is reactionary. But I digress. The point is, is that he doesn't as as. He, as tough as he thinks he is, he likes to think he is, um, the way Donald Trump like embarrassed him the last time around, you know, and the way the Republican Party has shifted to this full blown barbarian style politics in terms of what they look for, they, they would much rather someone who is ridiculously uncouth like Marjorie Taylor Greene than someone who remotely reminds them of what Republicans used to be. And I'm not saying this as if Chris Christie is even a good actor, a good a good faith actor. I'm just saying he is much closer to the old Republican Party than what the Republican Party has become. It's interesting because um, I haven't even thought of Marjorie Taylor Greene running for president, but she she has like real strong Marine Le Pen vibes, <laughs> like and she's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, Marine Le Pen no. of France, the the uh, perennial right wing Nazi uh, mm -hmm. candidate whose father was also, um, Simon, uh, Chris Christie. Yeah. Does he I have mean, some sort of secret that we don't know? Yeah. Uh, secret. <laughs> I think we'll see a lot of people, uh, especially Republicans being very sort of coy about whether or not they're going to run in 2024, uh, as really mostly an attempt to stay in the headlines. I think, um, I am very curious about who is going to run, uh, on the democratic ticket to challenge uh, either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris um, in 2024. If it's Kamala, I think a lot of people, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe nobody. Um, I will tell you one thing. I'm running as an independent presidential candidate on the vasectomies for all, except for, I don't know, someone tweeted that like, if you're gay, do you get a vasectomy? I'm like, that's one I haven't thought about. Because how do you, do we need to have vasectomy cards? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I and listen. I, I fully support the vasectomy. Um, you know, I, I think any any reasonable and rational young man, if we can get that on the house, <laughs> please. Sounds like a dream, right? Like, who would be? It doesn't hurt when you get it done. I've been told. Uh, well, you know, I've been told otherwise. I've not haven't tested that theory yet, but I'm just saying, like, you know, it it really is the solution. But it's never been about stopping abortions. It's always been about. I mean, you. I'm sure you said it, but controlling women's bodies and it's mm -hmm. just 
please run for for, for office because I would definitely support your campaign. Thank you. I'm going to run for um, president in 2024 on, the, on an independent party line called um, Racist Sexist Boy line. <laughs> <laughs> My theme song is going to be. <laughs> no, no, it's going to be the Linda Lindas. <laughs> Your 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 theme, everybody, when you come on stage should be like snip snip, snip snip should be <laughs> that's the alternative. Sorry guys. <laughs> oh man. Simon Road, Ben Dixon, the best. Uh final thoughts, anything you want to add to this equation? Just throw it out there. I just want to say thanks for having me on yeah. and, and Ben, it's really nice to be on a panel hey. with you. Same here, Simon. <laughs> thanks for having us, Nomiki. Love you guys. Take care. <laughs> All right, we got some shout outs here. Ooh, Mr. Potato, Bacon, Egg, and Cheese. Uh, that sounds delicious, minus bacon. You've got my vote, Nomiki, awesome. Harvey K, oh, Harvey K, the Biden administration is failing and will soon be flailing. It is tragic, oof. Strong words from Professor Harvey K. Can't wait to have him on the show, we'll discuss this more. Uh, Lou King says, pressure those seeking incumbency in your city council and other local elections to dissolve or Refuse future police union contracts if they want your vote. I will add one more to that. One more to that, ready? Pressure your progressive organizations who are backing them because they hold the power with a lot of these, these, uh, these lawmakers. They help them run their campaigns. They sometimes help them raise money for their campaigns. They help them with political dynamics and endorsements. But those organizations rely on us. They rely on our phone calls, they rely on our money, and they will feel the heat. So it's, you know, you gotta go after the whole power map, like look at the power map and see how one person is controlled by, you know, it's influenced by others. On that note, actually, really cool, says we can't have Justice Dems voting present on defunding DC cops either. There you go. All right, who else do we have in here? Shout out, oh wait, here we go, class time. Kenzo, what's up Kenzo? Netanyahu hated Obama, but loves Biden, yep. Both men have, have the same doctrine on Israel. Hmm. Wonder what the difference was. Great question. Kenzo, uh, if you, you can go back and watch this, but uh, I went on uh, uh, the, uh, oh my God, oh my God, what's it called? Oh my God, not the meet the, I keep on saying meet the press, meet the left. Oh my God, why is it so hard for me to remember that every single time? It doesn't, that's branding. Kenzo's show, he's the host of Meet the Left. Go check it out. It was awesome. Uh, we had a great conversation about everything. Did we talk? No, we didn't talk about vasectomies, but we did talk about mushrooms. We talked about uh, uh, Jamie and I are going to be separately, probably living with our best friends, women, um, giving up men and, and raising children with our best friends. And then just, you know, when men have all the vasectomies, we're just gonna like invite men. I don't know. We haven't figured out the details yet, but Jamie and I both, Jamie Pack and I both agree that that's the path forward. So we have to have Kenzo on because uh, he has a, 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 is it a segment or a show called The Wife Guys? I, I have to watch this, I haven't seen it yet. All right, I, you can fill in the blanks, Kenzo, in there because I'm really out of it right now. Ray Lee says, how about voluntary vasectomy or you get put into a lottery for forced castration? I like that. Also, Chris Christie is one of the of COVID's COVID nineteen. This is horrible. I can't say this out loud. Chris Christie is one of COVID 19s greatest failures. Class time. No, class time is a different one. I know class time. Class time is, but that's where they have the wife guys on. I'm not sure. The difficult truth says I just want to say that the Nomiki Twitch chat is chill and appreciate y'all. Definitely appreciate everybody. We appreciate everybody on Twitch. We appreciate everybody on YouTube. We very much appreciate our moderators uh, and everybody who's working with those algorithms. And just want to remind you all, everybody make sure to click subscribe and like and share, um, go to our social media. And on Mondays, as you know, if you missed the show yesterday, it was a good one. I watched it. I had a glass of wine or two. Um, <laughs> I had a cheese plate. I had uh, some manchego and some, uh, what else did I, because I've, I've been told that you guys like when I talk about my food and drinking habits. So I'm going to tell you, I guess. I had a Malbec because <laughs> it's nice and smooth. And I watched the committee program because it's three hours long and it's amazing. And I like to watch things, not necessarily podcast them. So go check out the committee program. It's so well produced. It's just vis visually stunning. These are like professionals. They, they, they're really, it's an art. And I think that what Arun and his team at the committee, including Julia, are doing is reinventing how progressive programming uh, exists on YouTube and other spaces like Twitch. So if you haven't watched it yet, it is you really haven't seen anything like it before. And not only is it visually stunning, but they do the work on the ground. And so they're offering 
a perspective that is, I think, unique in that for the most part, everybody on the show has real on the ground experience as well as as experience in an academic sense. Um, you'll have a lot of uh, people who, who, who can back up their theories with action as well. Kyle Rosado says, I think you should have a progressive activist toolkit session thing. That is a, not a bad idea. I'll think about that. I'm not, not that I'll think about it, meaning like when I have a little bit more time, I will try to put something together. Um, but on that note, the committee program does have sort of like a campaign toolkit. I can't answer your campaign questions, so go check it out. All right, everybody, we will see you manana. Same time, same place, 3 p.m. Eastern live on YouTube and Twitch. And then for everybody at Patreon, we love you. Uh, if you haven't already signed up to be a patron, go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. It is mucho appreciated. It is how we make this thing work. And tomorrow I will be in a different location. Apologize. I apologize for the hotel room look. I don't think I've ever done this before, uh, but I guess it's the norm now in, in, in post-pandemic world. Thank you to producer Dorsey and producer Brad, who's been uh, sitting in on, on the show today. What a day to sit in for the first time, Brad, huh? <laughs> the day that <laughs> I'm in a hotel room. All right, take care everybody and stay in solidarity.